Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Craft beer as a 21st century beverage category seems to know no bounds, despite the fact that beer is one of humankind's oldest drinks, said to date back to at least 5,000 B.C. New Orleans was once considered the brewing capital of the South, with over 30 local breweries producing sudsy golden lagers for the thirsty populace. Hurricane Katrina wiped out our last local brewery, Dixie Beer, in 2005, but today we're experiencing another golden age of brewing in the Crescent City and beyond. On this episode of Louisiana Eats, we're taking a long look at the rebirth of brewing statewide. We begin with our old friend, Carlos Knott. Carlos and his family are celebrating 10 years on Bayou Tesh with new brews and even newer brewery food. He's here for the update. While here in the city, Nola Brewing Company got the craft brewery movement started locally right around the same time as Bayou Tesh. We'll visit them on Chapatula Street to hear all about their past and taste some of their future. Then, Steve Hindi, one of the founding fathers of American craft beer, joins us to share his wider view of the hoppy past and future of a movement he helped begin over 30 years ago. We're popping the top and pouring a cold one, or two, or three, on this week's Louisiana Eats. This is Carlos Knott with Bayou Tesh Brewing, and we're celebrating our 10-year uh, anniversary this year, 2019. In the very first year of Louisiana Eats, I came across Carlos Knott in a beer booth at the Louisiana Restaurant Show. Craft brewing as a category really didn't exist yet in Louisiana, yet Carlos was in the biz, along with his family, right there on the banks of Bayou Tesh. I got him into the studio as soon as I could and have stayed in touch with him ever since, watching the incredible success the Knott family has had in the sleepy little Cajun town of Arnoville, and enjoying his brews along the way, too. Now celebrating their 10th year in business, Carlos dropped by to catch up and share a beer designed specifically for breakfast? There's a whole style of beers uh, the last few years called breakfast stouts, and they'll have like donuts or maple syrup or even bacon, usually some coffee or oatmeal or something in them that suggest you could drink, drink it for breakfast. And we were debating how to do one for Acadiana, and we were probably drunk, I'm not going to lie, and, <laughs> and someone suggested, you know, let's do a boudin stout. Well, explain for people who might not know about boudin for breakfast how important it is. 
Well, when we were growing up, we spent a lot of time outdoors with the uh, uncles and the aunts and everything. And, uh, you know, just camping or whatever, boucheries. And they would always joke that a Cajun seven-course breakfast was a Lenka Boudin six beers. <laughs> and that's pretty accurate. Um, and in addition to that, it's what we, instead of bringing donuts to business meetings, we bring Boudin. So it was a, just kind of a kind of a natural to put it in beer. Now, also, it's historically accurate as far as putting meat in beer back in the uh, colonial America and in, even in England. They would put meat, like uh, especially roosters in beer. Roosters in beer? Mm-hmm. They would call it cock ale, um, and it does two things. It gives a nice umami flavor to the beer. You don't really say, oh, it tastes like a chicken. It just kind of gives that savory quality to beer. And it also tenderized the rooster so it was easier to eat. <laughs> and and we've done that. We've done some rooster beers just for the tap room. And we did one with duck a few years back. We called liquid quack. Um, but it, it has a nice flavor. So we thought the boudin would do the same. Plus there's those nice spices, the uh, the sage and the black pepper, the white pepper, cayenne. That would really play well with the hops. And um, it really did. It was nice. And plus the rice in the boudin ferments as well. Carlos, I cannot believe that it has been 10 years. Congratulations. Thanks. It feels really like it's still a brand new uh, enterprise like we just started. 10 years ago, there were three brewing operations. That, that's right. And in the whole state. In the whole state. You were there at the start. Describe for me how you see your place in the Louisiana beer scene. Well, we, from the beginning, we did not want to be a beer factory, and our plan wasn't to be the biggest Louisiana brewery. Quite the opposite. Our goal is to do two things, to make the best beer in the state, but then also to remind people of where we came from and, and the lifestyle that people enjoy in Louisiana is how it's so different than the rest of the country. So we uh, opened a little brewery in our family farm uh, in a discarded railroad car, and uh, we just hit it lucky at the right time because within a month or two, we couldn't keep up. So we started having to expand uh, our brewery. Fast forward 10 years now, there's 38 breweries in Louisiana, another 15 more getting ready to open. So it's a much different industry now than it was then. Tell me how you all stay in the forefront. I think I know this Knott family, and you all don't do anything by accident. It's all carefully considered out there on the prairie. That and we all have ADD is the other thing. <laughs> so uh, every month uh, we think of something new to brew, some new style or some historical style or something just different to do. And in a way that keeps you kind of creative. You know, we didn't want to be a factory that just did three beers and and that was it. We always wanted it to be almost like art, uh, more of like the French and the Belgian style of brewing than the English or the German. And how many different brews are in your regular line consistently? So we have six that we do year-round, and then another 20 to 30 every year that's just one-offs or seasonals. So are you all at max capability? Are you putting out as much beer as you care to? Um, we just went through an expansion uh, last about a year ago, and so we're just under that maximum. We could do a little bit more. But in Louisiana, it's a different market than the rest of the country. So in like you're in Wisconsin, it kind of goes up and down through the year. But Louisiana is like Mardi Gras. It's, you know, you can't make enough. And then Lent, we're all Catholic, <laughs> at least in South Louisiana. And so it's down in half. Huh. And then Mother's Day, it's back on. And then summer, everybody's in Florida. No tourists come, so it's down. So you almost have to have twice the capacity in Louisiana just for those spikes that other, other states don't need. 
And how many states are you in now? So we're just in two now. Uh, we're in Louisiana and Texas. Okay. At one time we were in 16, and then about three years ago, the University of Louisiana approached us to do a collegiate beer, a Raging Cajun Ale. It was the first college in America to have its own beer. And no one expected, the distributors, the school, us, no one expected how big that beer was going to be. It's half the beer we brew right now is that one beer. So that took up all the capacity we were using to send out a state. So we made a, a, a decision as a family not to go into these or stay in these markets. That's incredible. You know, now Louisiana's kind of known for collegiate beers. Cause I think we have eight or nine in the state, and there's only 40 in the country. So we have, you know, a good quarter of all the collegiate beers are brewed here in this state. And once again, you were there at the forefront of this. Purely accidental. It, was, it wasn't on our radar. You all reached out, and it's been a great partnership. Carlos, tell me how your operation has grown. You've just expanded and expanded, and now there's even a restaurant? That's right. Uh, we worked with the commissioner, all the breweries, to get food legal in restaurant, uh, food legal at breweries in Louisiana. And so that was last January, and so we decided to open a wood-fired pizza kitchen for the most part at the brewery. Uh, we do some other foods as well, but mostly kind of uh, our take on Neapolitan pizzas. All the meats are from Acadiana. Uh, most of the meats are from Acadiana. Except for the pepperoni. Yeah, huh? I was telling you about that. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> we fought the market for a while, fought our customers. were like, we're not doing any pepperoni or those kind of pizzas. But, you know, people bring their kids. They want a pepperoni pizza. It's sadly our number one seller <laughs> as well. <laughs> but we do do a be, uh, one with uh, andouille, tasso, chorizo, and smoked sausage, and that's our number two. So mm, that's a that's a pure decajun pizza. Oh yeah, huh? and, and and every month we change out two or three, and those are usually the seafood pizzas. So whatever's in season for seafood, like we just did a crab meat, and before that we did an oyster. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of fun. It's kind of like the pizza. We're always doing different things and using our creativity on them. It's such a family operation. I was surprised to hear that your brewmaster brother is no longer doing graphic design because when you all first started, you were really a one-stop brother shop. That's right, and we just got too busy. He's uh, he's just he's he's the head brewer, so he's always brewing. My dad, who's eighty-five, will be eighty-six next month. Still gives all the tours in English and in French. And uh, he's not even slowing down. He did uh, last Saturday like six tours. He was complaining because we wouldn't let him eat lunch. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so wonderful. And what about the next generation? How's that coming? That's, work, that's working great. We have my niece uh, is um, studying to take over the taproom operations. And then my son works uh, on the brewing side. And then I have a daughter who's 13 who wants to be the CEO <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Success is a tricky thing to navigate, isn't it? It is. And uh, I, I read an article once from a guy who survived World War II. He was shot down and he escaped. And he said that almost prepares you for being in business. right? <laughs> and it's, uh, you, you only have to be right one more time than you're wrong is what's the point of his article. And it's true. You always have to – I mean you always make mistakes. So you always have to try to get one ahead, try to pull one ahead. Well – I know that you all are celebrating this 10th anniversary in a big way. You created a new beer for the celebration? That's right. We really wanted to celebrate. So it's uh, the highest alcohol beer brewed in Louisiana, 23% alcohol. 
it's uh, half German Pilsner malt, and the other half are the Champagne grapes, um, Van Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir grapes. And we, uh, we just kept feeding the grapes to the beer so the yeast would keep living and get it up to 23%. And um, we're going to have to sell that in small bottles. <laughs> <laughs> I see that already. It's the right thing to do. I think it's the responsible thing to do. What's the name of it? So it's Velvet Testicles. Velvet what? Testicles. Would you spell that? T-E-C-H-E-T-I-C-L-E-S. We work with a company called Tilt for our uh, package design and marketing, and they came up with the name, and and uh, we thought, that's a little risky, but they talked us into it. On the label, it's a image of a, um, a gentleman in New Orleans on a kind of a stereotypical porch, um, but dressed as a woman. And we thought we'd actually get a because we're in a pretty conservative part of Louisiana. Yeah. We thought we'd get a little blowback, right? But we only had one complaint. One lady called and said, "No one, no man dresses like that in Louisiana." <laughs> and we're like, "Have you been to New Orleans?" Right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> really. But I mean, just one complaint. So um, I think it was time for that beer to come out. Carlos, you all are really something over there in that little town of Arnoville. You know, you've got to travel a little bit off I-10 to get there. But, oh, my goodness, what a treat is waiting once you make the little trek. Well, thanks. Uh, We encourage people to come out. We now have music three nights a week, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all local music. Um, It's just a blast. And we tell ourselves that the real profit of our business is we get to meet so many new friends. Well, I am so glad that you are my old friend now. These 10 years, what a wonderful, wonderful thing. So thank you, Carlos, for coming to see us. Thanks for bringing along the Cajun breakfast out. And I can't wait to toast you on the 10th anniversary. Congratulations. Thanks. We look forward to that toast. Carlos Knott of Bayou Tesh Brewing. I'm sad to say we weren't able to join Carlos for their Arnoville birthday celebration. But as promised, we're raising a bottle to you, Bayou Tesh. Here's to another 10 years of craft beer innovation. You know, this breakfast stout is delicious. When Louisiana Eats comes back from a break, we'll hear from Dylan Lintern, president of another local craft brew institution celebrating their 10th anniversary, NOLA Brewing Company. Stay tuned. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and with support from the Napoleon House, located in the historic French Quarter. Dishing up 200 years of history, refreshing Pim's Cup cocktails, and toasty warm muffaladas. 
all-day dining and private events at 500 Charter Street. Seven days a week on the corner of Chapatulas and 7th Street, NOLA Brewing Company's Tap Room welcomes visitors looking to sample the brewery's wide variety of draft beers. Each style and flavor has a name with some New Orleans connection. Their Irish Channel Stout is a tribute to the brewery's Irish Channel neighborhood. And their Boyle Advisory Blonde Ale? Any local will tell you, that one needs no explanation. My name is Dylan Lintern, and I'm the president and COO of NOLA Brewing Company. Dylan Lintern welcomed me into their second floor tasting room. With its use of reclaimed wood and pieces of old streetcar recast as lighting fixtures, the space evokes New Orleans of an earlier era. Out of the window, I could see tugboats going by on the Mississippi River. Appreciate you coming. I'm glad that you got to make it out here. Uh, this is one of my favorite places to have a beer up here on the deck. Along with Kurt Coco and Peter Cadu, Dylan helped launch NOLA Brewing in 2008, establishing it at the time as the only brewery in New Orleans. In the years since, they've become a local institution with a growing national presence. Dylan explained to me that although their brewery has become almost synonymous with the city, the NOLA in NOLA Brewing Company doesn't actually stand for New Orleans, Louisiana. It stands for New Orleans Lager and Ale Brewing Company, which a lot of people don't realize. People recognize the name NOLA. It, it is associated with our city across the country. So anyone who's had a great trip to New Orleans, they see that NOLA brand, they instantly get brought back to that place in their mind, and they'll, they'll order it, and it has very strong ties to it. So uh, we are now in eight states. I would like you to take me back to the beginning of NOLA Brewing. How did you get involved, and how did this little place on Chapatulas come to be? Sure. So I was actually working at a brewery in San Diego at the time, and uh, I got put in touch with Kirk Coco and Peter Cadu, who are the founders of the brewery here. Uh, through a mutual acquaintance, they were flying out to San Diego for a conference, a brewing conference, and they put me in touch, and we hit it off uh, instantly, and they kind of ended up joking around saying do you want to come out and help help us start our brewery in new orleans and my brother had lived here i had a lot of connections here i'd spent a lot of time here so i i was kind of seeing the writing on the wall at the place i was at and then that brewery is now shut down and, and i kind of saw it go in that direction so i said heck with it let's do it and i moved out here and and helped them build this brewery out from day one we, i showed up it was just an empty warehouse all the equipment came in about a month later and then we started build out when we started, we were the only brewery in New Orleans and the third in the state of Louisiana. And for six years, we were the only production brewery in the city of New Orleans. So we, we saw very fast, rapid growth in the beginning stages. What was the beer that it all started with? So we actually started with two very approachable beers, uh, Nola Blonde Ale and Nola Brown Ale. You know, after the first year or two, that was a little bit of an educational period to get people to understand what we were doing. But after that, the next three or four years were just very rapid growth and people really dug into what we were doing. Started doing our IPAs and the stouts and lemon basil wheats. So we got to spread our wings a little bit once we gained people's trust. And then now I think there's 13 breweries in the city and 33 in the state and it's just become a whole total different animal. How in the world do you approach that market now? That must be 
it, it's mind-boggling to me to know how you stay ahead and keep up with that. That's a, that's a great question. That's I think that's something that all breweries are struggling with right now is figuring out ways to be relevant in, in an ever-changing market. It's one of those things I think that if you're not innovating and you're not making new products, you're getting left behind. And, and people really want what's new, what's next. But it, it's something that challenges the brewers these days. It's kind of being driven by the market. Uh, the consumer is driving how we are operating as a brewery these days when it used to be the other way around. So it's a little bit weird. Tell me about the difference between how it was at the start and how things have changed. For one thing, geographically, you all have grown tremendously. Yeah, we've grown tremendously. We're still in the same original. We still have the original building, but we've actually expanded out, taken over quite a bit more property around here. But it's besides the physical, it's been a, a very, very good growth of of our team, of our community, of our beer profile. Uh, we've, I think, this year we're coming out with forty-five different beers to product to market, which is something that's a huge strive from the first year when we put out two. So you can look at that, I guess, and. and gauge how far we've grown. One of the things that really impresses me about the brand is that you all make company decisions and you put your money where your mouth is and then you stick with it. I love the story about why you all only you bottle in cans. Yeah, we uh, we do quite a bit for our environment. It, it does impact some decisions that we make. The ones that we can, there's some of them are out of our control. But the can thing goes off of three basic principles. Um, first of all, the the beer is better packaged in a can. It protects it from light oxidation, so it doesn't go skunk on the shelf. The second reason being. We're in one of the biggest drinking cities in the country that has an open container law where you're allowed to walk around with cans, but not glass. But the third and most important reason is that our city does not recycle glass and all of our bottles would be going to a landfill and it's something we just didn't want to live with. On top of that, the, the holders that, we, that go on top, the six pack holders are made from 100% recycled plastic and they are 100% recyclable again. So once you use them, you should be, recycle them. Don't be a jerk, please recycle. Aside from being great um, ecological partners here in the city. You're really great community partners as well. You do all sorts of fun things like that annual Easter keg hunt. I just like to say that. <laughs> Absolutely. We just started planning for uh, this year's today, actually. So we also make a beer called the Revivalist Pale Ale. It was originally called Rebirth Pale Ale. This is a beer that raises money for the Roots of Music. $3 of every case sold and $7 of every keg sold goes directly to the Roots of Music which preserves music around the city and also gives instruments to kids and things like that. It's basically preserving musical culture and history throughout the city. So our first year that we did it, uh, I think we raised $75,000 for this cause and we've grown it since then. And then about a year and a half ago, we turned it into the Revivalist Pale Ale and uh, it's growing rapidly and it's just a great thing for our community. So I wanna hear about the scene in your tap room I know that that's another huge change in life that's occurred right here on Chapatulas. It's a huge change. And honestly, when we started the first three years in business, we weren't allowed to have one. We had to actually go in and, and lobby and change the law to be allowed to have a tap room. And three years into it, we finally got the law changes. We had a new com a change in the commissioner of the ATC. And so we went in and thought maybe this is a good time to pitch it. And then we, we got his okay. And then 
we started with a very small tap room to begin with, something we kind of already had that we could just, you know, put some taps through the wall, build a little cooler and go very low budget. And then we really quickly realized that uh, we were outgrowing that space. People were showing up all the time and it was like, it held like 30, 40 people. So two years later, uh, we got the opportunity to get the property next to us. And we built that out into a two story, kind of three different room tap room with a big deck holds about 450 people we got games here we got shuffleboard any kind of live music throughout the week there's different acoustic nights there's different sometimes we have live bands sometimes we have singer songwriter nights we do trivia things like that so it's just a really big fun community place to, to come throughout the neighborhood how many beers do you have on tap in the tap room and and do, how often do they change up well, we have 24 taps in the tap room, and they change daily. Uh, not all 24, but I come in, if I come in the tap room one day, come back a couple days later, there's five or six new ones that weren't there the day before. So we change them very rapidly, and uh, we try to keep everything fresh in here because it's fun for us and fun for the customers. I want to thank you all so much for welcoming us here to the brewery, and congratulations on all the success and all the great stuff you've got going on here on Chapatula Street. Thank you very much. Cheers. Dylan Lintern, President and Chief Operating Officer of NOLA Brewing Company. My name is David Blossman. I am the president of the Beta Brewing Company. David Blossman is a man ahead of his time. Long before it was legal for him to drink, David was experimenting with home brewing, making small batches of beer as a hobby. At 17 years old, he invested his teenage savings into what would become the Abita Brewing Company. Over 30 years later, he's now the president. David joined us to talk about Abita's pioneering role in the craft beer movement, beginning with its founding in 1986. You know, when Abita started brewing in um, 86, you know, we're actually, we're, we're founded in 85. We say 86 because what does it matter? Paperwork means nothing, right? It's that <laughs> physical part of brewing and selling beer. And so uh, there really weren't that many of them. I, I don't remember from the top of my head, but there might have been like eight, we might have been one of the first 10 or something. Certainly that's in existence today yeah. um, that uh, started up. And so, uh, you know, in the southeast, it was by far the first one. We weren't even close. From those early days, what beers are now your standards? Well, our number one beer uh, is Amber. And it's a beautiful Amber Lager, and it was the first beer we ever brewed. And uh, that and Golden, which we discontinued uh, about two years ago. We really thought when we started out that Golden, which was a continental lager, which is more like the fresh-tasting European beer that you could get here, mm -hmm. that's going to be our number one beer. But, you know, it had a difference in that it was fresh and probably a little more maltier, and, um, you know, which helped out with Louisiana cuisine. But it wasn't a huge point of difference. Where Amber, that was a radical beer back then. People Absolutely. talk about radical beers now, you know, 10-plus percent alcohol and whatever, hoppy and bitter and whatever, you know, you know. Aged in, you know, cognac barrels, whatever. Right, know? right. Um, so, you know, but you got to look back then. That was kind of extreme because it was so different. 
And uh, it really was designed to go so well with our cuisine. It's so versatile. Uh, it's malty, but it is balanced. You know, there is some bitterness, but just enough to, to balance out the sweetness so it goes down smooth. And it really offsets really spicy or, or rich dishes very, very well. It stands the test of time. It's still our number one beer. I don't think anybody was even thinking about pairing beer and food back then. Well, coming from Louisiana, you have to do that. That's part of our social <laughs> you know, heritage, right? You know, We sit down to a meal, and we like to enjoy it with friends and family. And it's not a holiday setting. It's a backyard barbecue. It's tailgating. And, I, you know, we tailgate. We, yeah. There's food involved, right? Great food. Right. It, you know, it's a gumbo cook or a crawfish boil. It's clubbing. It, you know, it, it's uh, all those things. And it also fine dining. It needs to stand on its own on the table. And I, I think beer really, really does well. Fine beer is great on a table because it really has a lot going for it. You know, the carbonation in itself is great with food because it scrubs the, the tongue of oils and lifts it kind of like a champagne would do, and leaves you ready to taste again. And, you know, wine can't do that. And, and look, I like wine, don't get me wrong, but, you know, people always say wine and cheese pairings. I always laugh because it's like the cheese sticks on your tongue, at least fatty cheeses, which I like the best. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it, it does nothing to remove that off your tongue so you can really enjoy some more tastings of, of the liquid and, and the cheese. But uh, beer does that. And uh, certainly so versatile from the different flavors of, you know, blonde beers to dark beers to amber beers and all the different intricacies that you have on the brewing method, the ingredients, the hopping and bitter levels, uh, you know, the sweet, the sour. I mean, there's so much spectrum there that, you know, when you actually look at the flavor wheel that uh, is used to describe wine and those to describe beer, the beer flavor wheel is about 30 percent larger than the wine one. Incredible. And, and we don't make things up either. No. Oh, this was grown on, you know, yeah. I could taste the tobacco. Oh, it's, <laughs> I know. It's not all fussy quite like that. David, tell me how Abita grows. The growth that you all have experienced in profile, in distribution, in everything. I mean, you all have just become a giant in the industry in many ways. Well, we're still very small in comparison to the larger brewers, but I hear what you're saying. There's no doubt. We're a top 20 craft brewer in, in the United States, and we don't have the population background. Like, you know, if we were in somewhere in the West Coast in a big city or, you know, in a bigger southern city like, uh, let's say, Houston or Dallas or Atlanta, I mean, you look at our market share, you're like, wow, we'd be this big. But we are a success story, but it's, it's not me. I mean, it is the idea. It's the people. It's the team. It's the location. It's the beer. It's the water. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of, you know, things behind it. And, 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 you know, we're not one to pound our chest and, oh, you know, pat ourselves on the back. We just like doing what we're doing. And, and um, that in itself is our own reward. But when people enjoy it, you know, that's it. And we would not be here today if it wasn't for the culinary industry really taking us under their wings and putting us on the table and seeing our vision and really pushing us in the right direction and um, helping us out so much. Um, you know, in the beginning, our beers were all over the place and they just were from batch to batch. They were different. Wanting to try and experiment with us with new things and um, being patient with us, that was very important. And I'm very thankful for that. How do you all dream these things up? I love this uh, this idea of you all being the the big operation that you are with this flexibility of always wanting to try new things and 
part of it has to do with the magic of your tasting room and people being able to come and visit yeah. your facility, right? No doubt. And it's our best way to interact with our fans. And that's what you see is like a lot of locals bring in friends from out of town there. That's mainly what we have. And it's good to get the perspective of our local fan and those that haven't tried it yet or those that are a fan from out of town and can't wait to get there. And so uh, there's a lot of energy there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we love that. And um, we show them a good time, you know, we show them the place and give a great tour and sit around and, and, and taste great beer. I mean, our homebrewing background and our adventurous, you know, in Louisiana, we love cooking new things, too. So you marry our culture with the homebrew spirit and love for, for making great beers. Um, we want to do those things. And to see that backed up, like you're saying, in our tasting room and in other bars and restaurants is very, very important. And also uh, with our social media channels and stuff, that people, our fans tell us, you know, and we follow them, you know, if they really like this or want to go in another direction, you know, we think about it. We really do value their input. Do you still brew at home? I haven't brewed at home in quite a while. I try to get my nephews involved in it probably about 10 years ago. And that was the last home brew I did. Um, it's just so much easier when you talk to the brewmaster and the brewers and you say, well, I want it to taste like this and do that. And oh, yeah. every once in a while, I'll make it's a recipe up myself. And it's it's easier to let them do it. And I have much better brewers than I am. And, uh, you know, Mark Wilson's our brewmaster, uh, born and raised in New Orleans, and he's fantastic. And he's got a great uh, group of people, too. And we're doing three or four test brews a week. So we're constantly trying new things. And that's the homebrew spirit in us is we always want to try new things and do things differently. And it just drives us to, to think about things like that. That's not the best business model. The best business model would be to stick to one or two brands get behind them and, you know, market them and do a great job with them. And that's really the import model. But that's not the craft spirit. You know, that we're adventurous and we want to try new things. David Blossman, president of the Abita Brewing Company. What do pink boots have to do with brewing beer? Stay tuned. And we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? Visit poppytooker.com to listen. While there, you can also subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. 
What do pink boots have to do with brewing beer? The Pink Boots Society is an international nonprofit organization created to assist, inspire, and encourage women beer industry professionals to advance their careers through education. The society is made up of the female movers and shakers in the beer industry. They're the girls who not only get the beer brewed, but also design the packaging, serve the beer, write about the beer, and in short, perform every industry job in what has traditionally been a very male-dominated field. Most importantly, the PBS, as it's known, helps women network and advance their own beer careers by raising money for educational scholarships. That's where Nola Brewing's Peach Berliner Vice comes in. With a word of warning, just like the ladies, this beer is one complicated brew. It's dry hopped with the Yakima Chief Hops 2019 Pink Boots Blend, featuring Laurel, Glacier, Mosaic, Simcoe, and Sabro Hops. The 4.5% ABV beer will be available later this month in 12-ounce six-packs and, of course, on tap at NOLA Brewing's Tap Room. So put on your pink boots and drop by for a taste soon. Let's all raise a toast to the ladies who brew. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Steve Hindi is one of the visionaries of American craft beer. Along with Tom Potter, Steve co-founded Brooklyn Brewery 31 years ago. Today, you can enjoy Brooklyn Brewery beer in over 30 countries and 30 states, including Louisiana. In his book, The Craft Beer Revolution, Steve explores the history of the movement, what it means to be a craft brewer, and how the word microbrewery was coined. In the beginning of the craft beer revolution, people called us microbreweries. And actually that term, I learned in researching my book, that term was chosen by a young guy who was working for the American Homebrewers Association in Boulder, Colorado. And he was a computer geek. Uh, so he was into microprocessors. <laughs> And he said, you know, these small breweries are kind of like microbreweries. And that's how that term came to be. The term craft beer developed more in the 90s uh, when the brewers formed an association. And we were trying to figure out how do we define the people we represent. And we coined the term craft brewers. Craft brewers are small, independent breweries dedicated to traditional practices and innovative practices uh, in the brewing industry. Uh, we have sort of expanded the American palate for beer uh, to a rainbow of styles that the big brewers had kind of ignored over the last 50, 60 years. Well, gosh, it's incredibly thrilling to have this opportunity to talk to you because you're widely recognized as one of the very first pioneers. So take us back to how it all started in the 1960s and explain your place in it all. You know, the real pioneer was Fritz Maytag. 
who uh, lived in San Francisco and bought a failing brewery called the Anchor Brewing Company in 1965. And really, Fritz was alone uh, in producing flavorful American beer. Then in 1976, you had the New Albion Brewery in Sonoma, California, started by a guy named Jack McAuliffe and uh, a couple of women, uh, Susie Stern and, and Jane Zimmerman. That was really the first real craft brewery, the first real microbrewery in America. That was a brewery cobbled out of, you know, Pepsi tanks and milk tanks. And uh, it, was, it was kind of doomed to failure because it was too small and nobody knew what craft beer was way back then. And then in the early 80s, you had Sierra Nevada, you had Red Hook, you had uh, the Widmer brothers. And Brooklyn Brewery didn't start until 1988. I, d I don't call myself a pioneer in the book. I feel that I'm part of what I call the first generation of craft brewers. The large brewers, I think, thought we were a fad and were going to go away. Uh, but obviously, we have not gone away. And now there are more than 2,800 of us all across the country. And now those giant brewers are trying to create brands that compete in our category. So they've, I think, come around to accepting us. But actually, in the back of the book, in the appendix, I do a chronology of big brewer efforts to compete in the craft segment. And it really started in the 80s. I mean, they have introduced dozens, probably hundreds of beers trying to compete with us but they never really stuck with them. You know, they came and they went. Only in the last couple of years have they begun to focus and promote, you know, beers like Blue Moon and Shock Top, Blue Moon being owned by Miller Coors, Shock Top by AB InBev. And now they're really playing hard in our segment. But I believe it's a real dilemma for them because the more they promote flavor in beer, the more they undercut their huge brands you know, the light beers and the, the light lager beers that they make. So I think it's a double-edged sword for the big guys. That is such an interesting point of view. So there wasn't ever any, like, dirty backroom deals. They didn't try to rub any of you guys out, huh? Well, I tell you, they are tough competitors. I remember the first time I took down a Budweiser tap, and it was at a place called... Louder Milks in Brooklyn, which is a club on a residential street. It was really kind of a strange place. And I came back to the brewery with that tap, and I was parading around. I still have the tap in my office, parading around saying, look at this, my first Budweiser tap. Well, they came down on me like a ton of bricks. I went back into that bar a few days later, and my tap was gone. And the owner, George Loudermilk, told me, yep, they, they made me a pretty good deal. You're out. So I learned a lesson there. Don't gloat. <laughs> now, from your point of view, you described yourself previously as being the first generation of craft brewers. Tell us about how things have changed and who are the ensuing generations. Well, if you think about the brewers who started in the 80s, that's what I call the first generation. And for us, craft brewing was about 
the German purity law, the Reinheitsgebot, you know, only using grain and hops and water and yeast in, in the beer. The point of difference between us and the big guys was that we were making all malt beers and we were adhering to this uh, German purity law. You might think of us as kind of the baby boomer uh, generation. Then in the 90s, breweries opened that were dedicated to Belgian-style beers, like New Belgium Brewery in, in Fort Collins, Colorado, started by Kim Jordan and her husband, Jeff Lebisch. They were focused on making Belgian-style beers exclusively. Those beers don't necessarily abide by the German purity law. They have fruit beers. They have beers with, uh, you know, with different grains in them and different yeast. And uh, it's a very different style of brewing. There were other seminal breweries in that second generation. Maybe, maybe you'd call them the Gen Xers, like Rob Todd with Allagash Brewery in Maine, Vinny Chilerzo with Russian River Brewery uh, in California. And these were people who were really pushing the envelope, making sour beers, making beers that are aged in wine barrels or, or whiskey barrels, a whole flowering of uh, exploration and innovation happened in the 90s. And the amazing thing is that the European countries that inspired us, like the UK and Germany and Belgium, they are now copying the beers that we're making here in America. Uh, so it's, it's really come full circle. There are a lot of people who may not be familiar with the names, the words, much less the roles that nano and gypsy breweries are playing in the industry now. Talk to us about the nano breweries and the gypsy breweries. You know, the last chapter of my book explores what I call the third generation. These are kind of like the millennials of the craft beer movement. And it, it's interesting. When I started Brooklyn Brewery, my goal was to become a big brewery. I mean, I wanted to sell some beer. A lot of the new people starting up have less ambitious goals, and they're really focused on building a lifestyle for themselves. So there are quite a few people who don't even have breweries. They contract with other breweries to make beers for them, and, you know, they're more involved with marketing the beer, and many of them are very focused on a local audience. They kind of like the role that a brewer can play in a community, and they're satisfied uh, with staying small, which I think is a beautiful thing. I think if you look at the future, there are going to be many different models of craft brewery that are going to be successful. There are going to be national brands, there are going to be international craft breweries, and there are going to be local breweries. There are going to be breweries like New Glarus in Wisconsin. They only sell in their home state. There are many niches here. This is not like the old days where the mainly German brewers were all making the same kind of beer. There's just an incredible flowering of uh, beer culture in, in America. Beer, from the point of view of your average American, really started off as being sort of the blue-collar drink. So how have you watched the beer drinkers change? Well, I think beer is still the blue-collar drink. I mean, you can't compare craft beer to wine, for instance. To have a great wine cellar, you've got to be a very rich person. But you can have the best beers in the world in, in your house 
at a reasonable price. Beer is still beer, you know. It's just that I think people are savoring beer and thinking more about what's in their beer and who's behind their beer uh, today. And I think that partly explains why the decline in consumption but the rise of craft beer, which I think is a good thing for, for America. Steve Hindy, co-founder of Brooklyn Brewery and author of The Craft Beer Revolution. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find our full broadcast, along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladu. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.